Well, it's good to be home. I spent all yesterday going ar- around the house saying, oh, it's good to be home, Pat. Oh, it's good to be home. <laughs> so, it's good to be home. It was, it was nice to be away, but it's good to be home. And at 1.45, I flew in late on uh, Friday, left uh, Wisconsin at 1.45. It was really very smooth sailing all the way through. We had the seatbelt fasten sign on most of the time, although the turbulence wasn't that bad. Um, Pat and I did experience one flight where the turbulence was absolutely awful. It was a very small plane. Um, We were with friends in Europe. There were about, it was about a six-seater plane, and we were coming in to land in a valley between mountains in Switzerland, and um, whatever possessed the pilot and his co-pilot, they decided to fly into a rather black storm. And uh, so everything in the plane is flying around us. And we're literally, although seat belted in, holding on to the seats because it is going as if we were at the end of a yo-yo. It was like this. So we were dropping and we were turning and we were... And then because the cockpit was right there, um, the scariest thing probably was the fact that the automatic uh, controls came on and said, danger, pull up, danger, pull up, wind shear, wind shear. (laughs) And and we're going, are we actually going to make it down in one piece? And thankfully we did. Well, there's a story about um, a plane a little bit bigger, but going through maybe not that quite degree of turbulence, but some turbulence and the and the pilot has put on the fasten seatbelt sign and um, the stewardesses have had to be seated and there are things flying around in the cabin a little bit and everybody's trying to grit their teeth through the turbulence except one young girl in a seat who is just sitting reading her book throughout the whole time. And when they finally do land, the passengers either side of her said, how come you were so calm in the middle of all of that turbulence? And she said, oh, well, my dad is the pilot and he's taking me home. (laughs) (laughs) So do we trust in this journey of life that our heavenly daddy is the pilot and he'll see us safely home? Do we have that kind of lived out faith? Do we have that kind of trust? It's the trust that the centurion had for Jesus. He trusted Jesus implicitly. So much so that Jesus was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. See, the story is around Jesus healing this beloved servant of this Roman soldier. But actually the focus of the story is not on the healing itself, it's on the faith that is displayed by this Gentile soldier, one of the conquering troops that has come in. And when Jesus talks about faith here, 
It's not an assent, it's not a belief in a set of doctrines or dogma. It's a lived out trust in a person. See, this was what was going on actually in Galatia, is that they'd set all of the doctrines in place and had gone back and said, no, actually, it's not just the grace that comes to us through Christ. You've actually got to believe and do all of these things, which is completely, in fact, antithetical to the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying. It's a different gospel. Don't ever believe a different gospel than the one that I preached, which is grace freely given. Trust in a person. Faith in the one who is the sovereign Lord, not an abstract idea. Faith in Jesus Christ himself. The kind of faith that the little girl had trusting that her daddy was the pilot, that he loved her, that he was able, and that he was taking her safely home. It's a lived-out trust. So what's the context of this story today? Jesus is returning to Capernaum. That's where he'd made his center of operations. Once he'd left Nazareth, he moved to Capernaum. It's from there that he called the fishermen, James and John, Peter and Andrew. And when he'd go up to Jerusalem, he'd come back to Capernaum. When he went on to the other side of the Jordan, he'd come back to Capernaum. When he went to Tyre and Sidon on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, he'd go back to Capernaum. He had just actually um, had this sermon of the Beatitudes on the plain just prior to him returning back to Capernaum. And in Luke's Gospel, immediately before this story, Jesus is confronting the crowds. He says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? says, put my words into practice. And then what he does is he, he, he draws the picture of two different buildings. One is built on the foundation of putting his words into practice. And one of the things that Jesus said is to trust him. So putting into practice what Jesus says is putting down deep trust roots. The more that we put trust into practice, the deeper and more secure is the foundation of the house when the storms and the turbulence of life come. Those who don't put into practice, he said, well, the the whole house is just blown away when the first storm of life comes. Because we know that it takes 21 days, doesn't it, to change something? And then three times 21 days for it to become natural. For it to become just something that we automatically do. Jesus is saying the more that you trust, practice my words, the more you trust, the more you are able to trust, the more you will trust, and the greater and greater will be your trust in the one who truly is Lord. Because if we say that he's Lord and don't trust him, then he's not Lord. 
because he said we can trust him. And so it's just lip service if we say Lord, Lord, and don't fully and completely trust him. So here he arrives after this a challenge to the people, to the people who have gathered around him. He arrives back in Capernaum and he is met by elders of the town who have come out on an errand. They've actually been asked to approach Jesus on behalf of a Roman soldier who actually has been so attracted to this God of the people whom his nation has conquered, a subdued people, and yet he has been drawn as a foreigner to worship this God, so much so that he has funded the construction of the local synagogue. And so he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus as a commanding officer of a conquering nation, he could have sent soldiers out and yanked Jesus back to where he was. But no, in all humility, he acknowledges the lordship of Jesus and sends out elders who are talking about his deeds and his piety and how he is, loves the nation and loves the God of that nation to the extent of helping them build the synagogue. And so Jesus is on his way to the centurion's house when another set of messengers come out. This time we hear that they're friends of the centurion and they come with this message from him. Lord, and if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And from a Roman soldier, that's some statement. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. I think this is the only place in scripture where Jesus is taken by surprise. He is surprised at his faith. He's just challenged the audience outside of Capernaum and now coming into Capernaum, a Gentile soldier displays this kind of trust in Jesus, that he truly is therefore Lord, Lord over sickness, Lord over all. The centurion, because he's in charge of a hundred soldiers, is used to being able to say to his soldiers, go, and they immediately go, or come, and they immediately come. And those who have been in the military understand those authority structures. But in today's day and age, if you've not been in the military, there's really no place where we understand that authority structure in that way. Because we look at things through a lens of suspicion. We're suspicious 
of politicians in authority. We're suspicious of the government. We're even suspicious these days of doctors. Um, back in, in the era when I was little and um, the doctor was up on a pedestal and could say no wrong and do no wrong. But we're suspicious of anybody in authority and we're quite ready to argue with them. Um, last evening, Sa Sandra said there, there is one other area where um, they have absolute authority, at least they used to in my day, she said. I went to a convent school and the nuns had authority. <laughs> I said, yes, I remember Mother Joseph Dolor as well. If she said, sit down, you sat down. But in today, we don't have that. But, but we can't put that suspicion that lens of suspicion onto God who is ultimate authority. Because if we do so, it's to hear Jesus' challenge to you, O ye of little faith. You see, God is the one who reigns. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all love. It's what Solomon says in this beautiful prayer over the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem that he has just had built. And he says, There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The centurion believed with all his heart that Jesus had power, that he had authority, that if Jesus commanded something be done, it was going to be done just simply because he commanded it to be so. Jesus is like a commanding officer over sickness. If Jesus says that someone will get well, they will. The little girl believed with all her heart that her daddy would get her home safe. Do we trust that our heavenly daddy will see us through all of the turbulences of life? and get us home safe. Because, because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he is the Lord of all the world. He is the Lord of the whole church. And he is the Lord of our individual lives. And whatever turbulence is going on, he will see you safely.